We have made a thing, a most terrible weapon that has altered abruptly and profoundly the nature of the world. We have made a thing that, by all standards of the world we grew up in, is an evil thing. And by doing so, our participation in making it possible to make these things, we have raised again the question of whether science is good for man or whether it is good to learn about the world, to try to understand it, to try control it, to help give the world of men increased insight, increased power. These are the words of Julius Robert Oppenheimer, otherwise known as the father of the atomic bomb. He is also the focus of Christopher Nolan's new blockbuster movie, also called Oppenheimer, which is out this week. Starring one of our very own, Mr. Killian Murphy. But we want to know who was Oppenheimer exactly? And how did he go from dedicating years of his life to creating the world's deadliest weapon to being one of its strongest critics? This week, we're going down the rabbit hole of the Manhattan Project and J.R. Oppenheimer. Hello everyone and welcome back to Red Room. If you are listening to this over on Spotify, welcome back. I know it's been a minute. I'm hard at work planning another video series for you all, but I wanted to do this episode because so much about Oppenheimer is popping up in the news at the moment. And on the podcast, I always say we have a bit of a Red Room bingo going on and so many stories whether it's alien and UFO stuff, whether it is conspiratorial Area 51, Los Alamos stuff, whether it is Bohemian Grove and secret societies, they all have a link to something called the Manhattan Project. And when I saw the movie about Oppenheimer come out, I just knew we had to do a little bonus mini episode on who he was and give some context to the Manhattan Project and his involvement. Now, if you want weekly episodes of Red Room and if you want this episode in video format, head on over to Patreon. It'll be linked below. It's six euro a month. You get a weekly deep dive into conspiracies, true crime, weird and wonderful content just my weekly little rabbit hole really and if not that's okay I'll be back really soon with another video series for you all. So in 1938 two men one called Fritz Straussmann and the other called Otto Hahn discovered nuclear fission and by doing so they basically discovered that they could make a weapon out of this and the weapon would be deadly. Now if we've learned anything about history especially American military history we know that nothing quite inspires the US military to up their game and start pumping money into some sort of research than their enemies having something that they don't. And when the Germans discovered the ability to make an atomic bomb They made it their mission to get there first. The atomic bomb was like the revenge body of the US at the time. Now, in saying that the US were a little bit late to get on the scared bandwagon of the fact that the Nazis could very easily make an atomic weapon, this scared especially the European allies tremendously even before the war officially began. And if I remember anything from both my combined knowledge of my Leaving Sir curriculum history 
and my encyclopedic knowledge of ancient aliens, it's that the Nazis, girl, they were killing the game when it came to their technology in warfare. It is why they were so much of a threat to the Allies for the first few years of the war. They were really doing very well in the war, okay? And it was all because of things like their U-boats, their missiles, the planes that they were driving. They were just years ahead of what the UK and what Russia had at the time. And as they were going into Europe, further into Europe, taking over all of these countries, coming up to the invasion of Poland, which kind of kicked off the whole start of the war... The UK and all the other allies, they were left kind of chasing their tail. And when they found out about the ability of an atomic bomb, it scared the shit out of them. So in the run-up to the war and in the midst of this fear of the Nazis possibly having access to nuclear weapons, two Hungarian scientists wrote a letter to President Roosevelt. Their names were Leo Szilard and Eugene Wagner. Now, they wrote a letter that was called the Szilard-Einstein letter, and that's because it was co-signed by you guessed it, Albert Einstein, which was something that they chose to do to hopefully get the US to take it seriously. They were urging President Roosevelt to start pumping their technology and their resources into atomic fusion and into nuclear weapons. Now, the Brits, meanwhile, they were actually quite far ahead of the US at the time. They were pumping their research into it because, you know, they knew that they were the next on the map for the Nazis to invade. And if the Nazis wanted to drop an atomic bomb on them, they were kind of screwed. They founded something called the MOD Committee that were doing basically loads of research into all different types of nuclear weapons, nuclear fission, all of that kind of stuff. And through their research, they realized that it was in fact possible and through the research that the Germans had, they were pretty damn sure that they had the ability to build an atomic bomb. They also realized that if this was the reality, which they're pretty sure it was, this is not a good position to be in. They also were in some sort of like deal with the US where they would have uh, shared scientific knowledge and they shared this knowledge with the states who at the time were not involved in the war. So the Nazis invaded Poland, World War II started and as I said, they were winning the war (laughs) for a large amount of it, okay? The first half of the war, the Nazis were invading left, right and centre. The London Blitz was happening. Their technology was getting them much farther than anyone could have bet upon. Somewhere in between the London Blitz and the attack on Pearl Harbour, President Roosevelt said, okay, let's get this research going. And he approved the US Atomic Programme in 1941. Roosevelt gave the responsibility to the military, who is, I guess, who you want to hold the fate of the world in their hands. But who else would you give it to, you know? I think his choice was between the military and the navy. So, I don't know, Jesus take the wheel, I guess. But he did so because the army had experience in uh, large-scale construction projects, but the Navy did not. He also agreed to collaborate with the British, and on the 11th of October, he sent a message to the Prime Minister Winston Churchill suggesting that they correspond on all atomic matters. Due to the scale of this project, it was being conducted all over the country with different branches looking into different elements of it, but it involved America's leading physicists and scientists from Columbia University, Princeton, the University of Chicago. There really was no room for error. They knew they needed to get it right. And one of these leading physicists is our main man, J.R. Oppenheimer. Now, Oppenheimer was a theoretical physicist and eventually would become the director of Los Alamos Laboratory during World War II. 
He was born to German Jewish immigrant parents. His mother, I believe, had been in New York for quite some time. His father was a little bit more fresh off the boat, as they say. But his father was a really successful textile merchant. And he actually ended up leaving Oppenheimer and his brother like something close to $7 million in today's money. So like they were pretty well off. And Oppenheimer went to private education. He was very highly educated. He would go on to get his bachelor's in science in Harvard in 1925 and he would return to Germany to get his PhD in the University of Göttingen in 1927. He was not someone whose interest was only in the sciences though. He also took classes in French literature, English literature and he's also someone who they said throughout his whole career he was very interested in almost like otherworldly things. He was interested in the occult and metaphysics and his interest went way farther beyond just direct science, which I find very interesting about him. Now, Oppenheimer was a really, really influential scientist to put things lightly, but even before his involvement in Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project, he was very highly regarded. He made huge contributions in theoretical physics, quantum mechanics and nuclear physics throughout his career, as I said, before the Manhattan project. He even made contributions to the theory of neuron stars and black holes, quantum field theory and the interaction of cosmic rays. So it's no wonder that he was recruited for this project. Politically, he was quite an interesting character, especially because he was used by the American government, even though he stood for a lot of stuff that would go directly against their interests. But in his early life, he said that he was pretty politically ignorant. He didn't pay attention to anything that was really going on around him. He said he found out about the crash on Wall Street, like, I think through his friend, like, a few weeks later. He was very ignorant towards things until the rise of fascism came about in the 1930s in Europe. And I'm presuming this was a combination between it happening in a country where his ancestors are from and where his dad's parents were from, but also because of his uh, Jewish side to his family. So seeing the persecution of the Jews coming up again in Germany and also seeing how unbelievably anti-Semitic this new uh, National Socialist Party, as they called themselves at the time, was and how Hitler's regime was targeting Jewish families in Europe terrified him and it got him very interested in politics and it turned him into a devout anti-fascist. It was around 1934 that he began donating 3% of his annual salary to support German physicists fleeing from Nazi Germany and trying to get them into America. At this point in his career, as I said, he was becoming outspokenly anti-fascist and he would donate for his entire career to anti-fascist groups all over the world. In fact, upon joining the Manhattan Project in 1942, he wrote on his personal security questionnaire that he had been a member of just about every communist front organisation in the West Coast. Although later he would kind of go back against this and be like, I was never a member of any communist regime, not me. (laughs) But that would not stop the FBI opening up a file on Oppenheimer in 1941, right before the Manhattan Project started, to keep an eye on his communist ties. As we know, when it comes to the US military, no saying gets it straighter than the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And at this point in time, enemy number one was Nazi Germany. So his ties to the communists were put aside and they went to work on the nuclear 
bomb. So in June 1942, the project was officially started in the temporary headquarters and where it gets its namesake of the 18th floor of 270 Broadway in Manhattan, New York. Now something that I always find really interesting and it's one of these kind of crossovers <laughs> of all of Red Room lore if you will is that in September 1942 one of the most important Manhattan Project meetings took place at Bohemian Grove. Now that is the 3,000 acre forest land owned by the Bohemian Club which is one of America's most powerful secret societies with you know alumni like George Bush, Richard Nixon, the list goes on and on. Pretty much every Republican president in existence is or was a member of the Bohemian Club. Now some pretty freaky stuff is said to go on in the Bohemian Club but we're not here to talk about that. If you want to hear about that we've done a whole episode on it over on Patreon but they are very proud of the fact that this Manhattan Project meeting happened here. And this is what gets many conspiracy theorists very, very interested in what exactly is decided at this meetup. Because technically, on the books, they're not supposed to talk any business. They're not supposed to make any huge decisions. Yet, the decision to pursue the manufacturing of the atomic bomb was technically decided here and they don't hide about it apparently they tell new members all the time that this is where the manhattan project began so who knows but those attending this meeting were including american nuclear physicist ernest lawrence mr oppenheimer himself the presidents of harvard yale and princeton along with representatives of standard oil general electric and a host of senior military officials Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Also in that September, a US general called General Leslie Groves was appointed the director of the Manhattan Project and he selected Oppenheimer as the head of the project's secret weapons laboratory. Now this decision was actually quite controversial because although Oppenheimer was a well-respected physicist and scientist in his own inner circle... It was kind of thought that the person who would be heading up this would have like a Nobel Prize for physics when Oppenheimer didn't. So some people were kind of going, is he going to be able for this massive responsibility? But Leslie Groves saw something in Oppenheimer that many didn't. He said he had an unbelievably wide breadth of knowledge. He was not just someone who only knew about nuclear fission or only knew about a very other niche part of physics. He had a broad understanding of all different kinds of science from chemistry to the science of metals to engineering. And he knew that someone had to understand all of these different facets in order to manage such a colossal project. He also said that Oppenheimer had an overweening ambition. So he was a highly ambitious and competitive person and he knew that this would be paramount to 
unlocked such a project success because he knew someone had to basically be chomping at the bit to get this done and Oppenheimer had it. Oppenheimer and Groves decided New Mexico will be where they're going to put the laboratory because number one it is pretty derelict it's the desert it's in the middle of nowhere but also Oppenheimer really liked New Mexico he actually owned a ranch here where he isolated after a bout of TB just before the second world war began so it was a close place to his heart and he had a home here so he decided let's get going he also knew that there was a boys school that would be a great plot of land for them to buy to start testing and developing nuclear weapons when he suggested this to general groves general groves agreed And soon, the Los Alamos Ranch School for Boys became the Los Alamos Laboratory. Now, it would start off quite small, right? But Los Alamos, towards the end of the Manhattan Project, had over 6,000 employees all under Oppenheimer's supervision. The budget for the Manhattan Project, I think started off at around 100 grand and ended up to be over $2 billion by the time they developed the atomic bomb. So the Los Alamos Laboratory focused on bomb design, construction, and testing. But it should be said that there were many other branches of the Manhattan Project, some in Tennessee, some in Washington. It was all about like getting the plutonium, getting the uranium, all these different kind of branches. So it wasn't only at Los Alamos. But what was at Los Alamos was Oppenheimer and the development of the bomb itself. The scientists at Los Alamos created two types of bombs, little boy and fat man. The former using uranium-235 and the latter using plutonium-239. Now Oppenheimer was said to be a master of all scientific aspects of the project. He was also admired for how he was a great negotiator between the upcoming drama between scientists and the military. There was a little bit of confliction there. One of his colleagues admired him so much he went on to remark, he did not direct from the head office, he was intellectually and physically present at each decisive step. He was present in the laboratory or in the seminar rooms when a new effect was measured, when a new idea was conceived. It was his continuous and intense presence which produced a sense of direct participation in all of us. It created that unique atmosphere of enthusiasm and challenge that pervaded the place throughout its time. But we have to remember, this was an active war after all. And he was at the helm of a ship creating the world's most destructive weapon known to man. And Oppenheimer knew what he was there to do. In 1943, when anxiety spread among the Americans that the Germans had already developed their own atomic bomb, Ernico Fermi, a colleague of his and a really, really famous guy within the whole Manhattan Project, suggested using radioactive materials to poison German food supplies, to which Oppenheimer replied, I think we should not attempt a plan unless we can poison food sufficient to kill half a million men. He was well aware of the destruction and the violence that this bomb could cause. And I feel like he was someone who had this tunnel vision that it, the, the goal was to create the bomb and at any cost necessary. Now, the testing of the Fat Man bomb, which was made of plutonium-239, was called Trinity. That was a code name that they gave for the actual testing. And it was suggested in 1944, and Oppenheimer agreed that the weapon needed to be tested before it was detonated. So he approached Leslie Groves, who was actually quite anxious about it, mostly due to the cost of um, how expensive plutonium was to actually acquire, because it's not a naturally occurring element. Um, and it had cost them upwards of around a billion dollars 
dollars at this point to get enough for the bomb. So he was afraid they were going to test something, you know, waste all this plutonium and then they'd have to start from scratch. But eventually they got it over the line and on July 16th, 1945, Oppenheimer and his team looked out over the vast desert in New Mexico as the first plutonium bomb in human history was detonated. Now, Oppenheimer later recalled that while witnessing the explosion, he thought of the verse from the Bhagavad Gita that translates as, if the radiance of a thousand suns were to burst at once into the sky, that would be like the splendour of the mighty one. But he would later say that this verse is what popped into his head. Remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that. One way or another. Major General Thomas Farrell, who was present on the day of detonation, commented the following. Dr. Oppenheimer, on whom had rested a very heavy burden, grew tenser as the last seconds ticked off. He scarcely breathed. He held onto a post to steady himself. For the last few seconds, he stared directly ahead. And then when the announcer shouted, now, and there came this tremendous burst of light, Following shortly thereafter by a deep, growling roar of the explosion, his face relaxed into an expression of tremendous relief. Others said that Oppenheimer was walking around with a little bit of swagger in his step that day. He was triumphant in Los Alamos. He had completed what he wants out here to complete. This is a scientist. He was given a problem and he had solved it. He apparently was expressing his regret at not being able to actually use it against Nazi Germany. But something happened and changed in Oppenheimer in the years following. But let's first make sense as to why he was possibly so triumphant over this achievement. He was a man of determination. Remember, Leslie Groves said that his overweening ambition is why he got the job in the first place. He's a problem solver. He's a physicist, an engineer, a mathematician at heart. He wants to solve this problem. And after three years, he did did it and he saw it happen in front of his own eyes. And just imagine that tangible reality playing out in front of you, seeing the haunting sight of a colossal mushroom cloud spilling out, growling beneath you in the depths of the New Mexico desert. It must have been quite the crescendo to years of hard work. But in 1965, he would reflect on the testing and say, we knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. Following the Trinity testing on the 6th and 9th of August 1945, the US detonated two atomic bombs over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The bombs killed combined number of around 225 thousand people, most of whom were civilians. Its impact was immediately seen, with Japan surrendering to the Allies on the 15th of August 1945. After the bombing, it was almost like Oppenheimer had seen the reality of what he had created. And apparently he was especially opposed to the bombing of Nagasaki, thinking that it was completely unneeded after Hiroshima. 
Using the atomic bombs was a bit of a dick-swinging, dick-measuring move by the US. The war was over. The Germans had already surrendered. But after all of their $2 billion worth of research, they knew they had to use the weapons to show their enemies what they had in their arsenal. But this is where Oppenheimer and his associates scientific moral conundrum came into play because they did not feel that it should have been used, especially the second bombing. Oppenheimer was not quiet about his disgust and he took this directly to Washington on August 17th, 1945, hand delivering a letter to the secretary of the White House, conveying his revulsion and his wish to see nuclear weapons banned. In October, he met with President Harry Truman and it went absolutely Horrifically, Oppenheimer told him that he felt he had blood on his hands for what he had done. And this infuriated Truman, who would later say to his secretary, I don't want to see that son of a bitch in this office ever again. After the war, Oppenheimer would become a bit of a celebrity. The Manhattan Project was declassified now. Everyone knew they had an atomic weapon and they wanted everyone to know that too. He would be on the cover of Life magazine, on Time magazine, and he would use his platform for the rest of the years of his life to speak up against the horrific nature of nuclear weapons. I know, quite a conundrum we have on our hands here. But in particular, he was so opposed to the production and the development of the hydrogen bomb, which the US had decided to put more research into under J. Edgar Hoover. He would comment in 1947, if atomic bombs are to be added as new weapons to the arsenals of a warring world or to the arsenals of nations preparing for war, then the time will come when mankind will curse the names of Los Alamos and Hiroshima. The people must unite or they will perish. And of his guilt around developing such a weapon, he would say they dramatise so mercilessly the humanity and evil of modern war, in some sort of crude sense which no vulgarity, no humour, no overstatement can quite extinguish. The physicists have known sin, and this is a knowledge which they cannot lose. Now this outspoken criticism against a weapon that he helped develop on government dime... It did not go down very well, and he was stripped of his security clearance in 1954. This ended his career as a government scientist. Of course, his warnings against further developing any more nuclear bombs went completely ignored, and on the 1st of November 1951, the US successfully tested the world's first thermonuclear device. The British followed suit in 1952, and the Soviets in 1955, and thus began a 40-year-long arms race and the world it would never be the same again. Oppenheimer lived out the rest of his life lecturing throughout Europe and Japan. He was awarded France's highest honour with the Legion of Honour in 1957 and he was elected a member of the Royal Society in Great Britain in 1962. In 1963 he was welcomed back to the US and President Kennedy awarded him for the international achievement in science. So That is the story of how Oppenheimer helped create the world's most deadly weapon and then went on to be its biggest critic. Let me know. Are you going to go see Oppenheimer? I'm very excited to go see it. I already have my tickets booked. It's going to be a good one. I'm excited to see how they do it. I'm excited to see Killian Murphy. He's such an incredible actor. Let me know what you think of this episode in the comments down below, either on YouTube, if you are on Patreon, or if you're listening on Spotify, leave me a review, subscribe and vote in the polls and give me a little message below. I love to hear from you all and you can interact on Spotify now. As always, 
If you want weekly episodes of Red Room, you can head on over to Patreon. I'll be back very soon. I promise. Bye.